So our second Bible reading is from Paul's letter to the Colossians. And you, who once were alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death, in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him, if indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard, which has been proclaimed to all creation under heaven, and of which I, Paul, became a minister. This is the word of the Lord. Well, it's great to uh, to be with you this morning. As uh, Bernard mentioned, my name is Mark Hastings. Uh, we've known each other quite a long time, and I'm happy to uh, to be here with you. One of my favorite uh, writers or thinkers is a man by the name of Nicholas Wolterstorff. Now, I realize that's not exactly a household name. Wolterstorff was a professor of philosophy for many years at Calvin College in Grand Rapids, Michigan. Now, some of you may know that uh, Calvin is an institution of the Christian Reformed Church, the old Dutch Reformed Church in America. Wolterstorff graduated from Calvin College and uh, then taught there for many years before moving to Yale, from which he subsequently retired. Well, some years ago, he returned to Calvin to give a talk entitled, The Grace That Shaped My Life. And in that talk, he spoke of his early years, growing up in the small-town farming community of Bigelow, Minnesota. He spoke of his family and of his local church. And of the church and its services, he said this, There is no fear of repetition. The view that only the fresh and innovative is meaningful had not invaded this transplant of the Dutch Reformed tradition in Bigelow, Minnesota. Through repetition, elements of the liturgy and of Scripture sank their roots so deep into consciousness that nothing thereafter, short of senility, could remove them. No fear of repetition. Well, the Bible is not shy of repetition either. In fact, one of the remarkable assertions in Scripture is not only that God remembers, but that He demands that you and I, too, remember. Remember how I brought you out of Egypt. Remember how the Lord your God led you through the wilderness. Remember the law of my servant Moses. In 2 Timothy, somewhat surprisingly, the Apostle Paul says, Remember Jesus Christ, raised from the dead, a descendant of David. And at the Last Supper in Luke 22, Jesus said, Do this in remembrance of me. And we do. We remember. Why is remembering, why is repetition important? Well, because the purpose of our remembering, from a biblical perspective, the purpose of our remembering is to retrieve the past, right? That's what we do when we remember. We retrieve the past and we bring it into the service of the present for encouragement, for hope, for direction, and for worship. In fact, worship itself is inconceivable without remembering who God is and all that He's done for us in Christ. Now this morning, I'd like to remember with you a short, but I think familiar portion of the Apostle Paul's letter to the Colossians. So if you'd please keep your service bulletins open to the text we just read. Colossians is one of the shortest of Paul's letters, but it is a letter a particular letter written to a particular congregation at one point very early in that congregation's history, a congregation that was likely quite small. So it's a particular letter to a local church written in the first century, probably the late 50s or early 60s AD. But to believe that Colossians is inspired scripture as we do 
is to believe that God intended to say just these things to that church, and in so doing to address the church as a whole, including Good Shepherd Anglican. Now, early in its history, Colossae was a city of some commercial importance due to its wool industry. There are scattered references to Colossae throughout ancient writers. In the Greek, the Greek historian Herodotus, writing in the 5th century BC, spoke of Colossae as a great city. A century later, the chronicler Xenophon described it as a populous city, both wealthy and large. But during the following centuries, the city declined considerably, both in population and in significance, so that just two generations before Paul, it was spoken of only as a small town. And by the time Paul wrote to the Colossians uh, there, the, Christian, the, the commercial and social importance of the city had declined considerably. Now, what effect this had on the townspeople or the believers among them, we don't know. The last century, the British New Testament commentator J.B. Lightfoot said, without doubt, Colossae was the least important church to which any epistle of St. Paul is addressed. And this may well be true. But what this shows, I believe, is that God knows and cares for and about small churches. Small churches are not insignificant churches, not from God's perspective. Now, reading the entire letter through, the picture we get is of a Christian congregation obedient to the gospel Paul preached. So why the letter? Why did Paul sense the need to communicate with what was probably a very small group of new believers? Well, we know from the opening verses of the letter that Paul has been praying for their Christian maturity, and now he's working to produce that maturity by writing to them. You can see this in chapter 1, verse 24, through chapter 2, verse 5. But Paul has been informed of a threat to their maturity, the threat of false teaching, which if unchecked will lead many astray. And so he writes. And after his introductory greeting, his prayer of thanksgiving and intercession for the Colossians, Paul then launches into a brief section on the greatness of Christ and his work of cosmic reconciliation, the reconciliation of all things. And then Paul narrows his focus somewhat and reminds his readers, including us, of four important truths, truths we need to hold in our hearts and minds today and in the days ahead. First, the apostle reminds us of our previous state before Christ, when we were estranged from God, alienated and hostile in mind. That's verse 21. Second, he reminds us of our present condition reconciled to God through the death of his, of his Son. That's the first clause of verse 22. And third, the Apostle reminds us of our future destiny, to be presented holy and blameless before God above reproach. That's the last clause of verse 22. And lastly, he reminds us of our present duty, to persist in faith and to maintain hope. Verse 23. And we'll look at each of these in turn our previous state, our present condition, our future destiny, and our present duty. Now, this apostolic reminder is necessary because of the danger to us of failing to recognize and enjoy all that it means to belong to Christ, to thank God for it, and then to live in the appropriate manner. Now, I came to Christ when I was a 19-year-old uh, freshman at university. And I remember those days, I'm a lot older now, um, but uh, periodically, on usually on LinkedIn, I'm able to connect with a friend from, from those days. 
And lots of times it's encouraging to realize that friends I knew back then who were part of this Christian ministry I was part of are still walking with the Lord, still pursuing Christ. But it's also been discouraging to find that others have kind of gotten sidetracked. They wouldn't deny Christ outright, but they're no longer really following Him. And that's kind of depressing, actually. It is possible for us to get sidetracked. Sidetracked by false teaching, but sidetracked, I think, more in our day by the cares of this world and the lure of wealth, as Jesus put it in the parable of the sower in Mark 4. And so this apostolic reminder is important. Let's look then at verse 21, our previous state. What the Scripture is saying here is that all of us were once estranged, alienated from God, continuously and persistently out of harmony with God, out of harmony with His character, with His purposes, His plans, His will. The word translated alienated implies isolation, loneliness, a deep sense of not belonging. Almost by definition, we lived apart from the one true God. And this, of course, is the problem besetting all of humanity. You know, all men and women are stamped with the image of God, made for a relationship with Him, for obedient fellowship with God. But man, since the fall, since sin entered the world, is somehow out of order, out of sorts, spoiled and ruined by sin. With the result that we were at one time hostile in mind, enemies in our minds because of evil deeds, Paul says, wicked works. From God's perspective, no man can be an agnostic, and no man is actually neutral about God, not from God's angle. Apart from God, we were enmeshed in idolatry and slavery to sin, whether we recognized it or not. That was our true condition. Now, the phrase hostile in mind doing evil deeds simply means that we were enemies of God. Again, not neutral about Him, but actually enemies of God. And that thought and act are both tainted, each pushing the other into further corruption. In other words, what the Apostle is saying is that godlessness naturally leads to evil deeds. And evil deeds lead, in turn, to further mental corruption. So much so that the mind of the unconverted, though not totally ignorant of God, finds itself approving evil, finds itself approving what God forbids, glorying even in what God forbids. And examples abound. It doesn't take much to think about them. Think of ethnic cleansing, or the killing of the unborn, or anti-Semitism, or treating people differently based solely on the color of their skin. The mind of the unconverted finds itself approving what God forbids. Now, friends, this is a picture of the Colossians before Christ, a picture of us before Christ, isolated from God, enemies of God, profoundly lost slaves to sin. And apart from Christ, that's where all men are at. So this is a dismal but accurate description of our past, and of our unconverted and unbelieving neighbors and colleagues, friends and classmates, regardless of how good they appear to us, regardless of how talented they are, regardless of how funny they are, regardless of how smart they are. Now, this true state of affairs ought to be a spur to prayer and evangelism and witness, to giving an answer for the hope within. 
as it so evidently was for the Apostle Paul. And I think Paul would agree with that statement, but that's not his purpose here. Our former plight, alienated from God and so forth, is recalled not because of the emphasis falls on it. In fact, the Bible nowhere endorses the idea that any one of us should go back and dwell on our life before Christ, that time of alienation and sin. The Bible does not endorse that. A little later in this letter, Paul actually admonishes us to seek the things that are above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things above, not on things on earth. You know, it's often struck me with Paul uh, that if, if anyone should have been discouraged or even disabled by his former life, before Christ, what he did, it should have been St. Paul. But he clearly was not. He didn't live in the past. He didn't dwell on his former life in Christ, except to make a point now and then. He's straining forward to what lies ahead, and so should we. So again, our former plight is recalled not because the emphasis falls on it, but to draw attention to God's mighty action on our behalf in the reconciling death of his son. You see, the terrible plight from which we and the Colossians have been delivered only magnifies the wonder of God's mercy. Now, what Paul does here in verse 22 with his mention of the word reconciled is he, he reaches back to verse 20 and applies it to the problem of our alienation in verse 21. Now, I know that's a lot. You probably don't have verse 20 in front of you. Verse 20 refers to reconciliation on a cosmic scale. The reconciliation of all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven. And Jesus alone is the mediator of reconciliation. Paul then narrows the focus in verse 21 and says, you know, that cosmic, all-embracing reconciliation now applies to you, Colossian believers, and to us. Our present condition, then, is one of reconciliation. And the death of Christ is its basis, the decisive event by which we are reconciled, restored to a right relationship with God. And that's good news. What's the effect of reconciliation? Friends, reconciliation breaks the cycle of sin in our lives and gives us power to overcome more and more sin, power for living, power for living a life pleasing to the Lord. Reconciliation heals our ruptured relationship with God and brings us into accord with His plans and purposes, His character. And we were reconciled, Paul explains, in His body of flesh by His death. Verse 22. In other words, reconciliation was accomplished by one who was truly incarnate, truly man. Jesus fully identified with those he came to save. He shared our fleshly existence and he truly died, taking sin's consequences upon himself. And every gospel writer, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, makes that plain. So our present state is one of reconciliation. If you've put your trust in Christ, your hope in Him, you're no longer alienated from God, no longer estranged from Him, no longer slaves to sin. But notice what Paul does not say. Paul does not say 
I wish he would say this, but Paul does not say that God's action in Christ and our acceptance of the gospel have automatically and instantly made us perfect. We each know that, I think, in our own lives, through our own experience. We're not perfect. Whenever I find myself straying in my thoughts toward that idea, my wife and kids bring me up short. The truth is, we are both acquitted and sinners at the same time. Reconciliation is complete and final on God's side, but it has a particular end in view. The latter half of verse 22. The end of reconciliation, our future destiny, is to be presented holy and blameless and above reproach before God. Said another way, when you and I are presented before the judgment seat of God, no accusation will be raised against us. None. In Christ, we are without fault, without blemish, above reproach. The Apostle says something similar in Romans 8. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. In other words, the verdict of the last day has been brought forward into the present. Isn't that amazing? There is no condemnation now for those in Christ. The verdict of the last day has been brought forward into the present. There are some uh, encouraging words uh, at the end of the letter of Jude, verse 24. They're often used as a benediction. It really kind of says it all. Jude writes, To him who is able to keep you from falling, and to present you before His glorious presence without fault and with great joy. That's our destiny. That's God's purpose in reconciliation, to create a holy people in Christ. And that's still a work in progress, isn't it? I mean, God's done it in principle by dealing with sin on the cross, achieving reconciliation. But He's doing it in practice as well by refashioning our lives according to the pattern of the perfect life, the life of Christ. And this is why, for instance, trials, adversities, difficulties of many kinds come into our lives. Because when we face them with joy and perseverance, with hope and trust in Christ, they lead to Christian maturity, which is precious in God's sight. Listen to these words from the letter to the Hebrews, chapter 12, beginning at verse 3. Consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. In your struggle against sin, you have not yet resisted to the point of shedding your blood. And have you forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons? My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by him. For the Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son whom he receives." Did you hear that? God loves you. Therefore, He disciplines you, reproves you. God has welcomed you. He's accepted you. Therefore, He chastises you. C.S. Lewis, in his uh, own unique way, puts the matter like this in uh, Mere Christianity. He writes, Imagine yourself as a living house. God comes in to rebuild that house. At first, perhaps, you can understand what he is doing. He is getting the drains right and stopping the leaks in the roof and so on. 
You knew that those jobs needed doing, and so you're not surprised. But presently he starts knocking the house about in a way that hurts abominably and does not seem to make sense. What on earth is he up to? The explanation is that he is building quite a different house from the one you thought of. Throwing out a new wing here, putting on an extra floor there, running up towers, making courtyards. You thought you were going to be made into a decent little cottage, but he is building a palace. He intends to come and live in it himself. Do you ever wonder sometimes why Christians don't seem to have it all together? Why believers are often riddled with all sorts of problems? I think in part it's because the Lord is dealing with us, refining us, purifying us, restoring the image of God in us, making us more like Christ. And God is not in a hurry. Patiently is how God prefers to work. So reconciliation has a future goal, as a goal, our future destiny, to be presented without fault before the Lord, if. Now sometimes that little word, if, is kind of unsettling. Uh, sometimes not, and it's the latter case here. If indeed, verse 23, which leads to our present duty. Paul knows that true faith is the beginning of a life given by God, a life which will be brought to completion by God. But Paul, you know, never tires of introducing moral considerations. He does this in every one of his letters, and we'll see it a little later in Colossians. He does that because he knows that genuine Christian faith is seen in patient and steadfast day-to-day -day Christian living. Now, from God's point of view, genuine faith is assured of continuing to the end. And in fact, the Greek construction that's translated, if indeed, does not express doubt. It's almost as if Paul were saying, provided that you stand firm in the faith, and I'm sure you will. Nonetheless, continuance is the test of reality. And we only discover whether our faith is genuine by patient perseverance encouraged by the Christian hope. Of course, this is a warning to anyone who professes the faith and then imagines that he or she can live as they please. Our present duty is to continue to look to Christ, to trust in Him, rely upon hope in Him in a life of daily discipleship. Day-to-day -day Christian living, persevering patiently, encouraged by the hope of being presented blameless before God. Now, I've said nothing new. I'm sure you've heard this before. It's only a reminder, a bit of repetition. But why is it important to be reminded that we've been reconciled to God by the death of His Son and that our ultimate hope is certain? Why is that so important? Well, Paul tells us a little earlier in the letter that the fact that our relationship with God is secure and settled has the effect of stimulating us in the present, in our lives today, to a greater, more constant, and stronger faith, and to a deeper, more costly, and more sacrificial love. Why is that important? You know, I heard some of this actually in, in uh, the first section of Bernard's prayer this morning. Paul wrote another letter around the same time he wrote Colossians. He wrote the letter to the Ephesians. And in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 10, 
He tells us that we were created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Friends, God has called us to Himself, not just so we can go to heaven when we die. He's called us to Himself because there's work to be done in this world to be accomplished for His glory. And that work requires a faith that is constant and a love that is costly. May God help us to remember and reflect on the hope that is ours through Christ. Amen.